Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and today I'm joined by my co-host Astrid Edwards and author Nadia Owusu. Nadia is a writer and she's an associate director at Living Cities, which is an economic racial justice organisation in the United States. If that means not a lot to you, she's an urban planner as well as an absolutely exquisite memoirist. Her book is Aftershocks and it tells the story of Nadia's life. She was two years old when her mother abandoned her and her baby sister and fled from Tanzania back to the United States. When Nadia was 13, her beloved Ghanaian-born father died of cancer. She now resides in New York herself. This is a really quite beautiful but also distressing book about a woman searching for her sense of self whose world has been interrupted by a series of fault lines caused by the other people within it. Here's our discussion with Nadia. Nadia, Aftershocks is your beautiful brand new memoir and that probably suggests that most listeners won't have their hands on a copy yet. Can you tell us a little bit about why you wanted to write Aftershocks? I describe the book as a literary memoir with threads of cultural history that explore themes like the complexities of family and the meaning of home, sort of the multiplicity of identity and the ripple effects of personal and generational trauma. And I actually started writing the book as a private project, sort of just writing it for myself. You know, I was coming out of a period of depression and anxiety and kind of feeling sort of like I couldn't find steady ground, both in my sense of self, but then also in terms of feeling connected to the places that my family came from. You know, I grew up moving all over the world. My father worked for the United Nations. My father was from Ghana. My mother's Armenian-American. But I grew up, you know, I was a third culture kid, and I grew up outside of my parents' cultures in many different countries and cultures. And in many ways, that was a really beautiful upbringing. But it also left me feeling sort of unsure about my place in the world and my connection and attachments to even my own family, and particularly because my mother left when I was really young, when I was two, and my father died when I was 13. So in some ways, writing Aftershocks was a way for me to sort of narrate myself closer to my family and also to the places that they came from. And so that's sort of how it started. And then it was a couple of years later after I had sort of set the raw material aside that I went back to it and wondered if I could make art out of it and if others might be able to connect to that story of sort of searching for self as well. I love that description, make art out of it. This is not only your story and incredibly well-written, Nadia, but it is a beautiful literary memoir. I actually teach writing at a university in Australia, at RMIT University, and memoir is one of the highest forms of writing that students aspire to do and students aspire to do well. And today we're talking about barriers. You just described to us why 
and how you wrote Aftershocks, your memoir, but it must have been difficult. I'm, I'm sorry for putting words in your mouth, but a memoir is personal. This is personal. And the idea of sharing the story of your family, many of whom are still alive and may very well read this memoir. How did you move through that or decide to do it? Yeah. I mean, I think I was sort of supported on the journey in the fact that when I started writing it, it really was just for myself. You know, I did have writing aspirations, but I thought that I would write a novel and I wasn't necessarily planning to write a memoir. I was doing a lot of research about, you know, the countries where I lived and my family background and mental illness. You know, I had struggled with mental illness. And so I was doing a lot of research and writing for myself to better understand sort of my place in the world and how I connected with some of the stories that I was exploring. And I think because it started out as a private project, I wasn't so worried about, you know, putting it out in the world or what readers would make of it, at least as I was drafting. And it was difficult in that it really required me to be very honest with myself because otherwise it would defeat the whole purpose of, you know, doing sort of this personal reckoning, which is kind of how I came to see it. So it wasn't until later that I started kind of worrying or thinking about sort of how other people, other readers might come to the book, you know, once I'd gone back to it a couple of years later. And then I think where I landed, I did sort of wrestle with it for a while in terms of do I really want to try and, you know, write this in a way that others might read it. And what I came to is that I had already done much of the hard work, you know, that deep sort of excavation of self and reckoning and all of this rich history that I had unearthed. And I thought that to weaken that by worrying too much about being judged or what others might think would sort of be a disservice to all of the work that I had put in. And then I also, as I went into the revision process, you know, thinking about my family members, for example, then it became really important to me to ensure that I was making the people that I was writing about as multidimensional as I made myself on the page. And that what was really important to me, ultimately, what I realized was that I started writing from a place of grief, you know, grieving because of my mother's abandonment, grieving my father's death, grieving sort of feelings of dislocation and disconnection. But ultimately, I found that I was writing toward love. And so when I held on to that idea that I was actually writing towards sort of deeper love and connection for the people in my life and the places that I came from, that I could do it in such a way where I was truthful to my own experience, but also really committed to writing into the fullness of everyone else's humanity as well and extending compassion and grace to other people in the way that I did to myself. And so that's sort of where I landed. Nadia, writing, for want of a better word, characters in your own story in the same three-dimensional way that you had yourself sounds uh, both compassionate and sensible, but I just want to note for a moment for the audience how difficult that is to do. It's your own memoir. Of course, you're going to be a fully fleshed out character for the audience, but it is difficult to give that to all of the others who have less page time, I suppose. And I do think you did it really beautifully. It was easy to empathise with a lot of the characters that you presented us with, who of course are not characters, are people you've come across in your life. You lived in Ethiopia for part of your childhood. And as you said, your parents worked for the UN and and you lived in a gated community. I lived in one myself when I was a very young child. What did that physical separation teach you about how barriers can change people? 
Yeah, I mean, I do think that my experience of living in Ethiopia was a very formative one. You know, I was eight when we moved there and 10 when we left. And we moved there because my father worked for the UN and specifically worked to deliver food aid during disasters. And so in this case, you know, there was a a famine in Ethiopia that was actually kind of one of the, the biggest humanitarian crises in the 20th century. I think we can all remember people saying sort of children are starving in Ethiopia. And it was caused by drought and civil war. And so arriving in Addis, and we moved there from Rome, which is where the headquarters of the agency my father worked for is, it was a big culture shock in many ways. And it was immediately clear that there was this humanitarian crisis going on. You know, there were a lot of orphans and child beggars who were, you know, my age and younger in the streets and a lot of poverty, you know, across the street from the gated community where I lived, there was a really big shanty town and I could sort of climb into a tree in our garden and look into this big shanty town. And I think in some ways, both the acknowledgement of my privilege living behind this wall that had sort of barbed wire and guarded gates, you know, with armed guards, it was a big sort of learning experience for me, particularly because it was really important to my father that I understood, and he emphasized a lot, that very little separated us from the people who are impacted by this crisis. It was a matter of sort of luck and circumstances in a lot of ways, and especially because my father was from Ghana, was was African, and so, you know, among a lot of the sort of expats who work in the sort of aid industry, there aren't as many sort of African or Black people, and so he wanted to make it really clear to me that, you know, I was my story and my life is deeply connected to, you know, the people for example, who are living in the shantytown. And on the other hand, he wanted me to be really aware and really grateful of my privilege. And I think that that really shaped my worldview and shaped sort of how I saw my place in the world, my family, and sort of what my responsibility might be to other people. In Aftershocks, you recount a time when you are applying for uh, a job, you are looking to work in a not-for-profit and the person who is interviewing you, a, a white woman, who in the course of your interview demonstrates that she doesn't know the capitals of countries in Africa, rejects your application. And you muse in aftershocks about you know why that would be and what your place may or may not be in that kind of international not-for-profit world. I'm sorry you had that experience. That's just really terrible. But you have have led a life of privilege, but also a life of many disadvantages. And you've now chosen New York as your home. How do you look to your own future? And what barriers do you still wake up and find affect you day to day? Yeah, so I think, you know, in moving to New York, so I moved to to the U.S. for university when I was 18. I am an American citizen because my mother was American, but I wasn't raised by my mother. But on the other hand, I sound American, largely because I went to international schools most of my life, and a lot of the international schools were the American system. And so I arrived here when I was 18, and a big part of my coming of age was coming to understand sort of the racial arrangement in America and my place in it. And of course, I've been Black my whole 
whole life. And so, you know, living in Europe or living in uh, going to boarding school in England, you know, the fact of my blackness meant something different in each place that I lived, you know, in Ethiopia, many Ethiopians thought I was Ethiopian until I opened my mouth to speak. Or in Italy, sometimes we were like the only black family in the neighborhood that we lived in. So it wasn't that I wasn't aware of race or hadn't experienced racism, but it was really quickly clear to me in America that race and racism sort of shape a lot of American life and the way that all of our systems, whether that's sort of where people get to live or where people go to school, are shaped by racist thinking. And that even when, you know, we got rid of those laws on the books, that that thinking has continued to be really central to the American experience and specifically to the Black American experience. And so for me, arriving here, sounding American, being a Black person, I was assumed to have grown up here. And I think that that sort of shaped my experience different than for, for example, other African immigrants or people from the Caribbean who maybe their accents or something, you know, would set them apart and they might have a different experience. But I don't think that I, before I arrived here, that I fully understood the way that racism works in this country. You know, the story that that I understood and that we learned in school was that the civil rights movement happened and there's still racism, but a huge amount of progress has been made and that actually as a black person, you're better off in America than you are in Africa. And that wasn't my experience. You know, I think it's very complicated. And so I do see that as a barrier that I continue to kind of push on. I'm not sure if you know, Nadia, but Jamila has actually written a book uh, called Not Just Lucky. And I read Jamila's book before I ever met and became friends with Jamila. And the thing I remember most about that book is talking about voice and how a woman's voice physically sounds and can be interpreted, you know, in the workplace and in public life. You recount in Aftershocks not only that you have an international voice, but sometimes people love you on the phone and then they see you in person and decide not to like you or not to hire you or not to want to be with you and how you have learned to code switch and how all of the different feelings you have about code switching. I'm a white woman and I don't code switch. Many people who are listening to Anonymous was a woman won't have that as their personal experience. Can you talk about your voice and code switching? So, you know, I have kind of an an interesting relationship and experience to my voice because I'm told that when I learned how to speak English, because I was born in Tanzania to a Ghanaian father, that I spoke with kind of an African accent that was sort of difficult to place. But then when I was, I think, Three, I moved to live with my aunt. My After my mother left, my father realized that, you know, he was struggling to raise two little girls on his own. And so for a couple of years, sent us to live with our aunt in the UK in a small town called Helsham, just outside of London. And so I grew up with a British accent until I was... I don't know, nine or so, and then started going to American schools. And I think at that age, you're just kind of a sponge. And so my accent shifted. But I do have access to the different accents that I had and can very easily kind of slip into them both intentionally and not. And that has always been something that I was aware of. And particularly when I was moving around so much growing up, I would do this dance of who do people need me to be? What are their expectations? And what will be the best voice for me to use in this experience? And I would often, you know, I think a lot of that 
had to do with wanting to be sort of accepted and welcomed and, you know, you're in a new school. But I think as I got older, as you're speaking to sort of in professional environments, it also is connected to whiteness and sort of the ways in which white culture, particularly in the United States, is seen as sort of more professional. And, you know, I write about some of my African-American colleagues who speak, you know, with a Southern Black accent, for example, who are brilliant, but who are judged to be not so brilliant because of their their voices. And so I think where I kind of landed and my exploration of code switching, which is sort of this movement back and forth between different voices and cultures. And on the one hand, I really celebrate, I've come to a place where I can celebrate sort of the fact that I have a voice that contains multitudes and that I have access to all of these cultures that really do live inside me and in my throat, you know, in the voices that I can speak in. But on the other hand, I do understand the ways in which not only has that benefited me in some ways, but, you know, professionally, for example, but I have to be careful in the ways that that makes me complicit in upholding structures that would exclude people who might not have access to, you know, the voices that I have access to. Nadia, your storytelling reminds me of my own family. My father's an Indian immigrant to Australia and uh, worked for the immigration department for many years. And he talks about the relationships that he had with people on the phone. And then he'd meet them for the first time in a meeting and they'd do this sort of weird double take because they just, they were expecting a white guy because of his accent and because of where he worked. There were so many assumptions that went with that and it, and it worked for him and it worked against him at times. Nadia, could you talk to us about the idea of black spaces? I, I think it's a term that not everyone is necessarily familiar with. And for those of us who are familiar, I suspect we often have a fairly shallow understanding Yeah, I mean, I think because, you know, in the American context, for example, because this country and who has access to space. So, you know, I have a background in urban planning and policy. So I think a lot about about space and asking sort of when I think about cities, I'm asking sort of how people interact, who has access to what spaces, including public space, whose spaces are designed for and why and, you know, how people feel a sense of security and of belonging. And I think in a lot of ways, Black people in America have had to create their own spaces, whether that's sort of cultural institutions from the Black church, which has been kind of the center, for example, of the the civil rights movement was, you know, grew out of the Black church. Or, you know, when you think about sort of the spaces that Black trans people have had to create to sort of celebrate their freedoms and, you know, the voguing comes out of those spaces and a lot of sort of culture and activism sort of grow out of this claiming of spaces probably that nobody else wants, but then that are imbued with a lot of sort of creativity and that, you know, make the most out of very little. And and I often wonder, like, what if Black people had access to more space and more beautiful spaces, what creativity and imagination would be possible then? And so that's part of why, you know, I think that thinking about the environment and who has access to space is so important in, in the kind of planning and policy work that I do. If we could stay with with spaces a little longer, because as you mentioned, you are an urban planner and that it forms the way you think about these questions. You talked about spaces that create room for creativity. Do you see a connection between black spaces 
and the Black Lives Matter protests in the States where people are literally occupying their own city streets in order to protest police brutality? Is that a claiming of spaces for the purpose of asserting one's blackness and what flows from that? Yeah, I definitely think so, because especially this last summer, sort of with this resurgence and growth of the Black Lives Matter movement this summer, what we were seeing was, you know, people dancing in the streets and sort of claiming the streets, claiming joy and, you know, creativity, even as acts of protest. And I think the claiming of space and of public space, you know, whether it's the Occupy movement or the Black Lives Matter movement has long been a tradition sort of in civil disobedience and is very much connected to sort of the radical imagination, which we know is something that imagination is the uh, something that we often think of as like something you have but radical imagination and in sort of an activist spirit is something that we practice together and i think part of that is claiming space and then sort of transforming that space through culture and you know music dancing imagination speech connection community so i definitely think that that's connected i have a question about intergenerational trauma which is a topic that is not only huge, but I think it is not well understood by many, many people. You talk a lot about intergenerational trauma within your own family, your mother's side. And I guess I'm asking you to talk a little bit about your family's experience for our Australian audience, particularly because in Australia, we do have intergenerational trauma in Australia. We have the stolen generations and Much of Australia understands and respects that, but there is a significant remaining chunk of Australia and Australian institutions who don't recognise that very well at all. And it is an experience that has happened around the world to different peoples and different cultures. And for those of our listeners who haven't yet read Aftershocks, I guess I'm opening a big one here, but can you talk about that experience within your mother's line and your family? Yeah, so on my mother's side, my family are descendants of the Armenian genocide. So my great-grandparents were Armenian genocide survivors. They escaped the Ottoman Empire and sort of fled across the Syrian desert on a really long trek, experienced denials from multiple countries in terms of resettlement, and eventually made their way to America as refugees. And, you know, I wasn't raised among my mother's family, but I I specifically remember asking my father why my mother left. And his answer, you know, this was before we deeply understood or the science, you know, was as robust as it is about epigenetic inheritance, which is sort of the scientific term for the way that we inherit trauma in our DNA and that actually genes can be turned on and off by the experience of trauma and then passed down through generations that lead to sort of things like depression and anxiety disorders, for example. And so exploring the Armenian genocide and getting to understand what my family went through was really important for me to sort of understand the context within which my mother was making decisions, you know, including her decision to leave. And my father definitely saw that as connected, you know, to the way that she saw her life her place in the world and sort of this fight or flight instinct, potentially, that 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 could have been part of this trauma passed down. And I think in doing this research, it, it enabled me to sort of extend more compassion to her, but also to understand sort of the ways in which, 
even though I didn't grow up among my mother's people, that that was also my inheritance and helped to put into context some of the my own sort of trauma, you know, that was connected to my mother leaving and my father dying, but also was connected to to the Armenian genocide that is still a genocide that continues to traumatize people because it still has not been sort of accepted and is still denied, you know, in fact, by Turkey and by many countries for political reasons. And so it was really important to me to write that story and sort of honor my family and where they came from. This is a somewhat personal question, Nadia, so feel free to tell me to jump. But has your mother read the book? She has. Um, She actually read it. um, So she read pieces along the way. You know, my mother and I actually, when I was in my 20s, I reached out to her after a very long estrangement. You know, after my father passed away, she still wasn't ready to be a mother to my sister and I. And so I, you know, I told her that I'd never wanted to see her again. And I sort of kept that promise for over a decade and then realized that my anger was not serving me anymore and sort of reached out to her. And this was sort of coming out of the period of anxiety and depression when the seed of what became Aftershocks was first planted. So we've we've sort of grown into a relationship where um, that I'm very proud of. It's like a day-to-day thing. It's a work in progress. And it's an active choice, you know, that we're making to continue to be in each other's lives. But so once I decided that I was going to write this book, you know, I started publishing essays that were excerpts from the book and I would share them with her. And it actually helped us to have conversations that gave me access to some of what, you know, she was going through at the time of the events that I couldn't really understand as a child. And she's been really supportive. When the book came out, she, you know, sat down and read it in one day and has been sort of driving around Massachusetts taking photos of the book in shop windows. So she's, you know, she's been really supportive and that's a sign of sort of the progress of our relationship. Yeah. I wanted to thank you for speaking with us today and and letting us ask questions, but I guess more importantly, I really wanted to thank you for putting this memoir in the world. I am a big reader and this is actually a book I am going to recommend to all of my colleagues to take into their class at university. It is beautifully written it is so very, very real, but it is also a read that I think will stay with people and help them understand their own experiences more. Well, thank you so much. That means a lot to me. Nadia, thanks for speaking with us today about Aftershocks and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for having me. hope you enjoyed our conversation with Nadia Owusu. I know that Astrid and I certainly did. We highly recommend that you go and get your hands on a copy of Aftershocks. That's all we've got time for today. If you enjoyed today's episode, please go and find Anonymous Was a Woman wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a rating. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss a thing. We will be back in your feeds next week where we will be talking about possibility. A big thank you to Future Women, to Hachette Publishing and, of course, to Bad Producer Productions. Talk to you soon.